Hey everybody and welcome to Breaking Biotech. Thanks for being with me here today. My name is Matt and if you like the show you can click the like or subscribe button and if you want to help the show you can also donate using the tip jar link in the description below. And I've also included a link for a referral to a broker that I like to use called Tastyworks. They offer a variety of different things, uh, short selling, you can do options trading as well as futures. So if you're looking for a new broker and you do want to help out the show you can use that referral link and that would also be great. So got a pretty exciting show for everybody, and glad to be back. I know I'm doing back-to-back -back week episodes, but I wanted to talk about this before ASCO comes, which is going to be next week. So we're going to touch on Veristem Oncology as the main company, and I'm also going to touch on the Moderna news that we heard, the interim phase one data that came out earlier this week, because it is definitely interesting stuff. So with that, I uh, do want to thank everybody for joining me today, and I wanted to give a shout-out from a donor. Advise everybody to check out the subreddit, Biotech Plays. I appreciate all the support that everybody's given me there, and they're actually pretty engaged. I know there's a few biotech-focused subreddits out there, but I think Biotech Plays actually has the most amount of people who are engaged and willing to, to talk about different companies. So check out Biotech Plays, and yeah, and I appreciate everybody who uh, shares my videos on there. So with that, let's get right into it. And the first thing I want to talk about today is Moderna. So what we heard on Monday, I believe, right at the bell, was that they announced positive interim phase one data for its mRNA vaccine, mRNA-1273, against the novel coronavirus. And I know this is a big wall of text, but the details are very important here. So I'm going to read a couple of these paragraphs and we'll break it down. But they said that immunogenicity data are currently available for the 25 microgram and 100 microgram dose level after two doses, day 43, and at the 250 microgram level after one dose, day 29. Dose-dependent increases in immunogenicity were seen across all three dose levels and between prime and boost within the 25 microgram and 100 microgram dose levels. All participants aged 18 to 55, 15 per cohort, across all three doses, seroconverted by day 15 after a single dose. So just to keep everyone up to speed here, across all these three dose levels, they're saying that between baseline and after a single dose, patients went from antibody negative to antibody positive. Now, we don't know what the sensitivity is of the assay or anything like that. All we're saying is that all of these patients became positive for certain antibodies. Now they go on. At day 43, two weeks following the second dose, at the 25 microgram dose level, levels of binding antibodies were at the levels seen in convalescent sera, which are blood samples taken from people who have recovered from COVID-19, tested in the same assay. At day 43, at the 100 microgram dose level, levels of binding antibodies significantly exceeded levels seen in convalescent sera. So I put three stars here just to make a call out to the actual clinicaltrials.gov page, which showed that the secondary objective in this trial was to evaluate the immunogenicity as measured by immunoglobulin G enzyme-linked immunosorbent assay, or that's the long version of ELISA, to the SARS-CoV-2-S spike protein following a two-dose vaccination schedule of mRNA-1273 at day 57. So this is what they're referring to, is the levels of IgG that are specifically in response to the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein. Now, a couple issues with this study 
in and of itself. So the first thing that stands out is we're only given descriptive character of what's going on in these patients. We're not being shown actual data. And, you know, just from the outset, that's pretty, pretty sketchy. And they're also comparing the levels that they saw in their study to levels seen in convalescent Sarah. But as we know, convalescent Sarah varies widely in the levels of IgG, and the timing also matters quite a lot too. So they omitted all of that stuff, and it would have been great to actually see how it compares to convalescent Sarah. Is the timing similar from which the COVID infection stopped? A lot of those details just completely omitted from this. The other thing is that the nature of the ELISAs against the IgG for the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein, the specificity and sensitivity varies quite a bit between these different assays. And we also don't really know how cross-reactive their assay was to different SARS-CoV uh, spike proteins. So as we all know, there's a variety of different coronaviruses out there, and we all might have some antibodies that could be cross-reactive in these assays. And we just don't know if that happens to be the case here. The fact that they compared baseline to after the injections kind of suggests to me that there is some increase in antibodies here, but it would have been nice to see more details, which were completely omitted in this. And the other thing is just because you've seroconverted, that doesn't necessarily mean you have protection against the coronavirus. So that's what they looked at in the second part when they talk about neutralizing antibodies. So to touch on that, they say, at this time, neutralizing antibody data are available only for the first four participants in each of the 25 microgram and 100 microgram dose level cohorts. They go on, consistent with the binding antibody data, mRNA-1273 vaccination elicited neutralizing antibodies in all eight of these participants as measured by plaque reduction neutralization assays against live SARS-CoV-2. The levels of neutralizing antibodies at day 43 were at or above levels generally seen in convalescent Sarah. So again, just descriptive. They're not giving us any actual data on how this compares to convalescent Sarah, but this is the data we really want to see. And just to give some background on this, you can check out my previous video on Moderna where I talk more about these neutralizing assays. Basically what they did is they take serum from patients that were treated with the vaccine and then they do a serial dilution. So they take the serum, dilute it in half, that's one and two, then dilute that in half, which is one and four, and they go on and on, and then they mix that serum and the diluted serum with the live SARS-CoV-2 virus. And what happens here is that if there are neutralizing antibodies, they will bind to the SARS-CoV virus and then prevent it from infecting cells that they're going to treat this cocktail onto. So they're gonna put the mixture of the virus and the serum on cells that were plated, and then after enough time, if there are neutralizing antibodies, plaques will not form on that culture dish. So you can express this data in a variety of different ways, and there are different neutralizing assays that are out there, but basically, the more neutralizing antibodies you have, the fewer plaques are gonna be seen on that culture dish. And in this assay, in eight of these participants, they have the same level of neutralizing antibodies that are seen in convalescent Sarah, so people who were previously infected with SARS-CoV-2. Now, again, we're, we're not given any details on this. It would have been nice to see the actual data, but we're left wanting here as well. So it's uh, very, very preliminary and very, very interim, but we, we saw a huge increase in the stock. I'm gonna talk now about the 
uh, safety data that we saw, which was also left, left more to be desired, but they mentioned here that the sole incidence of grade 3 adverse event in the 25 microgram and 100 microgram dose cohorts was a single participant at 100 microgram who experienced a grade 3 erythema, which is just redness, around the injection site. To date, the most notable adverse events were seen at the 250 microgram dose level, comprising three participants with grade 3 systemic symptoms, only following the second dose. They say that all adverse events had been transient and self-resolving with no grade 4 adverse events or serious adverse events being reported. So there's a lot to, to dive into here as well. They started by talking about the 25 and 100 microgram dose levels because that's what they're going to be using in their phase 2 study. They were going to be doing the 250 microgram dose level, but thankfully they, they retracted from that given that there are three participants with a grade 3 systemic symptom. And I would have liked them to actually tell us what that was. It's nice that they told us it was systemic, but in their previous paper, and I cited it down here, Feldman et al., 2019, in the journal Vaccine, they go into more detail on the kinds of adverse events that they see with their mRNA vaccination. And if it was just migraine or lethargy or even fever, that would have been a benefit to the press release here. And the fact that they didn't say which systemic symptom it was it kind of makes me think it might have been worse than that. And of course, the, the worst one would have been anaphylaxis. And anaphylaxis has actually been seen with some of these lipid nanoparticle vaccines, and the mechanism isn't quite well understood. So I, I read a couple of reviews that, that go into some detail, but we don't know a lot about it. But if Moderna had just told us what it was, it might not have been so bad. But the fact that they didn't makes me think that it was worse than we think it is. But the paper that they go into more detail on this, it seems like the most common one are lethargy, migraine, or fever, and none of them reported any anaphylaxis. So we don't really know here, but the fact that this dose isn't being used in the phase two trial makes it seem like there are going to be fewer side effects. And with only erythema being the one that they saw in the 25 or the 100 microgram dose, the safety doesn't seem so bad here. So for me, really, I'm more concerned about the efficacy. And the fact that they only did descriptive layouts of the data makes me think that there's not really much efficacy here. They are moving forward with a phase two study, and that is expected to begin in the second quarter of 2020, so probably in the next few weeks. And they're going to be looking at the two doses, a 50 microgram dose or a 100 microgram dose, and they're looking at two different cohorts in adults aged 18 to 55, and older adults over the age of 55. They're going to look at the reactogenicity and the immunogenicity of two vaccinations given 28 days apart. And each cohort is going to have 300 people. So overall, I, I don't think the safety is as bad as the efficacy like I mentioned. They're going to have to deliver when it comes to this phase 2 study because they're specifically looking at efficacy in the reactogenicity or immunogenicity. So. I don't think the stock warranted the huge increase that it saw, and we saw that just after the news came out that they priced a public offering of 17.6 million shares at a stock price of $76 per share. And since then, I think it closed on Friday in the, in the 60s or something, it was all over the place, so I, I didn't get a chance to look at the close, but we also saw that a lot of executives were selling into that news. And, you know, it is what it is. I, I don't think anybody should have been buying at the levels that which the stock is trading at right now. 
and gets super risky and there's still a very large possibility that it's going to fail either on safety or on efficacy. I think overall from kind of a moral hazard standpoint for Moderna to put out these very vague characteristics of efficacy and then also being kind of coy with the safety issues. If the FDA approves this before sufficient safety measures are taken and then the government goes ahead and forces people to take this vaccine, I think you could see very, very significant damage done to society, really, if a backlash against this vaccine carries over into other vaccines and the medicinal institution as a whole. So I think the FDA would be wise to make sure that Moderna does do the, the correct safety measures to make sure that everything is kind of put in place here, because if it turns out that X number of people die from anaphylaxis due to this vaccine, and there's kind of a, a real lack in efficacy here, I think the backlash is going to be pretty substantial. So that's kind of my take on Moderna. Leaves a lot to be desired, but it looks like as the trial moves forward, we're going to see some data pretty soon in phase two, since they're dosing pretty soon. So that's Moderna. Going to leave it at that. And let's get to the feature story for today, which is a company called Veristem Oncology. They closed on Friday at a share price of $1.86 per share, giving them a market cap of $300 million. They have net current assets, and that's the current assets subtracted by the current liabilities, of $122.9 million, and that's as of Q1 of 2020. Their 2019 Copictra revenue, which is their only approved medicine at this point, is $12.3 million, which represents a 600% year-over-year increase. And then their net income of 2019 is negative $149.2 million, and this represents a decrease of 106% year-over-year. So... Net income continues to decrease substantially, but Copictra revenue continues to increase. And there's not a ton of data on the revenue so far. It's only been approved for a couple years, but it does show that there is some adoption going on. The Q1 2020 revenue is $5 million, and that represents about a 200% year-over-year increase with a Q1 net income of negative $37.9 million, and that is flat year-over-year. So it seems like the numbers are going in the right direction, and that's a, a good thing for the company since they're not uh, profitable just yet. They have two sets of assets, I would say. They have their PI3K inhibitor, known as Copictra or Duvelisib, and then on the other side, they're trying to commercialize a combination of kinase inhibitors. One is an FAK inhibitor, and the other one is a KRAS inhibitor, but that's a, it's really a RAF-MEC inhibitor combination. So they're trying to treat with both of those inhibitors to try and improve different solid tumors. Now, like I mentioned, Copictra is their only approved asset, and it is approved for the indication of relapsed or refractory third-line CLL or SLL, as well as third-line relapsed or refractory FL. CLL stands for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. SLL stands for small lymphocytic lymphoma. And then FL stands for follicular lymphoma. So these are all part of a wide variety of diseases called non-Hodgkin lymphomas, and these are specifically indolent non-Hodgkin lymphomas. I'm going to talk about this in the next slide. And this drug is a phosphonositide 3 kinase inhibitor, and it specifically inhibits the delta and the gamma subunits of this kinase, and I'm going to talk about that more as we move forward. So to, to first kind of give a little bit of background on non-Hodgkin lymphomas, they represent a group of diseases that it involves malignant growth of lymphocytes. So those are T or B cells, and there's some other kind of in-between cells that are involved in that too, but that's largely what these diseases comprise. 
The prevalence in the USA is around 20 cases per 100,000 adults per year, and that ends up being around 66,000 diagnoses per year in the US. Now, among the non-Hodgkin lymphoma diseases, they're categorized as either aggressive or indolent. And indolent ones mean they're just slow growing and they don't often have a lot of symptoms involved with it. So the de decision to treat is only when they kind of become a significant manifestation in the blood or wherever the tissue happens to have these malignant lymphocytes. When they become aggressive, it becomes sort of a, a quicker thing where action needs to be taken in order to help the patient because they're starting to see negative side effects associated with this overgrowth of lymphocytes in the blood or wherever the lymphocytes tend to proliferate that categorizes the disease. So different types of indolent NHLs are CLL, like I mentioned, SLL, or FL. There's also marginal zone lymphoma, as well as cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So this is a manifestation of malignant T-cells that happen on the skin. On the aggressive side, there's PTCL, DLBCL, mantle cell lymphoma, as well as Burkitt lymphoma. And there's, there's other ones that I didn't mention also, especially ones that are kind of in between. And if you can imagine, these are categorized based on where the manifestation is. If it's in the blood versus the bone marrow versus the skin versus the lymph nodes. And if it gets aggressive enough, it could become compartmentalized in multiple different locations. And that has relevance when it comes to deciding on how to treat these diseases. What I have written here, there's many treatment regimens approved as well as ones that are in the clinic. And the decision to treat for the indolent ones is kind of a subjective thing based on the doctor's recommendation and what they see uh, most benefiting the patient. But there's many different treatment regimens, chemotherapies, immunotherapies, targeted therapies, as well as if it gets serious enough, radiation and stem cell transplants. So I'm gonna focus specifically on the therapies that are related to Veristem, but just know that there are multiple different ones out there. So specifically related to PI3K, and that stands for phosphonositide 3 kinase. To give a bit of background on this, it's a class of ubiquitously expressed kinases that are involved in basically transducing the outside world to the inside of the cell. And this manifests in a number of different ways. There's receptors on the cell that bind to a variety of different factors, and through a signal transduction pathway in the cell, and it's not super relevant what those are, but the PI3K molecule is important in those pathways to conduct that signal inside the cell and inside the nucleus to turn on or turn off different programs that signal to the cell to survive, to grow, or to differentiate. So that's all that you really need to know regarding the specifics. You can go on Wikipedia and spend hours and hours looking at the different permutations on how those pathways manifest, but one that I'll just mention is that PI3K is involved in cell-cell junctions, so cadherins are a class of molecule that are involved in cell-cell binding. And when cells, say in an epithelium, are supposed to be bound next to each other, those cadherins will bind and signal through this molecule, PI3K, to maintain cell survival. In tumor cells, what'll happen is they'll hijack this pathway and continue to keep its activation going even if the cell-cell junction is broken. And this is just an example of how this could manifest, but PI3K is instrumental in maintaining cell survival in that way. So there's multiple families of PI3K, classes, subunits, targets, functions, so it gets very convoluted, but the PI3K subunits that are relevant for Veristem is the P110 delta 
and the P110 gamma subunits. So if you imagine that PI3K as a whole is made up of different subunits, the specific P110 delta and P110 gamma are specific catalytic domains of a class of PI3K. So I know it gets convoluted, but just take my word for it that they're specifically targeting a subset of these molecules to try and minimize side effects because if you inhibit the whole thing you're going to get a lot of negative uh, side effects associated with this kind of treatment. Some of the studies that have gone on to look at these specific proteins, the P110 delta and P110 gamma, they've shown that P110 delta has a key role in B-cell survival while P110 gamma is important for B-cell chemotaxis. And what they've shown here in a paper, and I have the, the link down here, it's a nice little paper that just shows that if you treat a CLL cell line, so chronic lymphocytic leukemia cell line, with a variety of different molecules that inhibit PI3K subunits, you can see a decrease in the number of viable cells. And that's what they're showing here by annexin 5 staining. So IPI is another name for Copictra. IDE is the Gilead version of their PI3K inhibitor called Zydlig. And then IBR is another form of therapy. So what they're showing here is that in a CLL-specific cell line, if you treat them with a molecule that inhibits PI3K to some capacity, you get a decrease in cell survival, which is what you would want in a cancer therapy. Now, because PI3K is ubiquitously expressed, a therapy like this is also going to affect normal healthy cells. So what they did here is they treated normal PBMCs, and that just stands for peripheral blood mononuclear cells, so that just includes the variety of immune cells that are in the blood. And they saw that the treatment with Copitra or IPI here did not lead to a statistically significant difference in cell death. Now the p-value here is 0 0.06, so there's definitely some cell death going on in these normal healthy cells, but it's uh, academia, you know. So what Veristem has done is they've commercialized Copitra and they've gotten it through approvals for third-line relapsed and refractory CLL and SLL and relapsed and refractory third-line follicular lymphoma. They are currently seeking approval in the EU, and that was filed in 2019, and they've also struck royalty deals with Sanofi for the development and commercialization in a variety of different countries, Russia, Turkey, etc. And they've also struck a royalty deal with this company called Yakult for development in Japan, and another company called CSPC for the development in China. So there's a lot of potential income that they could see due to these royalty deals across the world. And of course, that's all dependent on them actually seeing approval. They're trying to expand the label for Copitra into different NHL diseases, so PTCL, combo therapies, and they're also looking at subsets of patients, ones that are resistant to another class of NHL treatments called ibrutinib. They're also looking at earlier lines, so rather than just having to treat as third line, they're hoping to do it in second line or first line. They're also trying to look into aggressive forms of NHL, such as DLBCL, which is the aggressive form of CLL. And then they're also looking at combinations such as Keytruda, which is a PDL1 antibody, and they're looking at that for HNSCC, and that's a has a very big patient population. So they have these very lofty plans to investigate this drug into all sorts of different things. Some of the downside here is that there is a black box warning. If you look at some of their phase two and phase three data, there are a number of different grade three treatment-related adverse events. These include diarrhea, neutropenia, anemia, 
it's very much has to be treated in the right setting. The other negative thing is that there's a number of different competitors, and I'm going to talk in a second about TG Therapeutics, but before I do that, I uh, just wanted to show here that the revenue has been increasing nicely, and like I mentioned in the previous slide, in Q1 2020, they saw a revenue of $5 million, which is pretty good. The cost is around $12,000 per month, and given that, the market penetration is around 400 patients in Q1 of 2020. And if we look at the total treatable patients at first line, is 22,000. So they definitely have room to increase their market share, but given the number of competitors that are out there, I think it's going to be tough for them to really garner a big stake in that market share. So to talk about competitors, let's, let's touch on TGTX. And I mentioned that I was going to talk about this in the previous video. They're a company that is trying to commercialize kind of two different things in non-Hodgkin lymphomas as well as in multiple sclerosis. And these are not really related to the fact that B cells are involved. But the news that we heard is that TG Therapeutics announced positive top-line results from the Unity CLL Phase 3 study evaluating the combination of embralisib and ublituximab, what they call U2, for the treatment of patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. So they saw a progression-free survival benefit across both previously untreated as well as relapsed and refractory patient populations. So this is pretty impressive here. They're not just looking at third-line patients, they're looking at those that were also previously untreated. Now we haven't seen the data yet, they're, they're planning on releasing that shortly, but they are doing a rolling NDA process to include a variety of different diseases. And that has been started, I think, at the beginning of the year, and they're hoping to finish it in H1 of 2020. And it's likely to include non-Hodgkin lymphoma diseases of all different sorts. And they've seen here specifically that in chronic lymphocytic leukemia that there was a pretty substantial benefit. So the stock increased substantially on that news. I think it doubled their market cap, even though their revenue right now is, is pretty much nothing. And then as soon as that data came out and the stock increased, they decided to raise some money in an offering where they now have garnered proceeds of $153 million. And I put here that their quarterly spend is around $36 million. But as the approval of this drug happens, which should be later this year, maybe early in 2021, they're going to finally start to see revenue come in. And they closed on Friday at $21.84 a share, giving them a market cap of $2.6 billion. So the market cap is 10 times that of Veristem but they actually have a molecule here that can treat previously untreated as well as relapsed and refractory populations in a number of different non-Hodgkin lymphomas. In terms of the level of revenue they can hope to see, I put Zydlig's revenue here. Zydlig is Gilead's PI3K drug, and they've had it approved <clears throat> since 2014. And what we see here is the revenue peaked at around $160 million in 2016, and then it's slowly been decreasing as other competitors are coming on the scene to take some of that market share. Now, if I had to bet, I would say that the U2 treatment here is going to take a greater stake in the market share than Baristem's Copetra, just given the level at which it's tolerated as well as the uh, significant effect that it has on these patient populations. So for me, Copetra is going to be difficult when all these therapies are coming online especially one like this, and it has a better safety profile as well as maybe a marginal better efficacy. So, so this is just a highlight of, of some of the competition that Copetra is going to face as it moves forward. 
I mentioned down here another competitor, Bayer, has a drug called Aliquopa, and it's approved right now for uh, second-line follicular lymphoma, and there's clinical trials right now for DLBCL, endometrial cancer, as well as HER2-positive breast cancer. So Copetra has its work cut out for it to be better tolerated from a safety perspective as well as from an efficacy perspective in order to outdo this competition that's coming down the pipeline. Now, another thing to mention about TGTX is that they are looking at ublituximab for MS, and there's a phase three readout coming out in the second half of 2020. So for me, it seems like this is an interesting company because MS is a huge franchise, and I think the estimate is like $30 billion business in 2025. So there's a lot of potential there for ublituximab, which is kind of a next generation version of rituximab. It's an anti-CD20 antibody. And it seems to have a decent chance at having a good effect here, at least being non-inferior to other molecules that are out there. And apparently it's easier to give as an infusion. It's like a shorter time and the side effect profile is pretty good. So if they see positive data here, I could see the stock, even at a $2.6 billion market cap, double from that. So I'm almost interested in taking a stake in this company just to see that phase three readout and see if there's a chance there. But the company has other assets, and I've talked about their TG1801, which is a CD47 antibody that they're looking at. They also have an anti-PDL1, as well as some BTK inhibitors, which are also relevant for the non-Hodgkin lymphoma indication. So that's Copetra. Now I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk about Veristem's other kind of asset, which is their FAK and RAS molecules. So these molecules are also a family of proteins involved in transducing the extracellular world to the intracellular world. And they're involved specifically in maintaining cell survival, cell growth, and differentiation. So cancer cells, what they'll do is they'll hijack these systems to maintain those growth and survival signals even if there's no extracellular signal binding to a receptor. In RAS specifically, mutations in this molecule drive around 30% of all human cancers. So it's been an interest of a lot of companies to try to develop specific RAS inhibitors so that they could help patients that happen to have one of these mutations. Now the issue is the development efforts have been made difficult by different feedback mechanisms as well as crosstalk between these signal transduction pathways. So I have here on the right an example of this where different pathways can actually affect one another such that if you inhibit a pathway at the wrong step, another pathway could come in and take over where that inhibitor was lacking and then still promote the deleterious activity of the cancer cell. So what Veristem's strategy is, is they want to treat to inhibit the activity of one kinase called FAK, as well as treat with this other molecule called VS6766, which inhibits two molecules, RAF as well as MEK. And these are kinases that are downstream of RAS. And their hope is that if they treat with both of these, the crosstalk mechanism that makes treating these targets difficult will be overcome because both of them will be inhibited such that one can't compensate for the other. So what they're doing is they have clinical trials in various different solid tumors as investigator-sponsored trials. They're looking at NSCLC, LGSOC, colorectal cancer, as well as advanced solid tumors enriched for RAS. And these are specifically biopsy and minimal tumors. So there was a lot of hype associated with this early in the year, and we saw the data about a month ago. 
and the only data that they presented was on the low-grade serous ovarian cancer, or LGSOC, as well as non-small cell lung cancer, or NSCLC. Now, the prevalence for LGSOC is only around 1,000 patients per year, but there aren't really many treatments for this condition right now, so the odds of this molecule being kind of a go-to for doctors is pretty high. The overall response rate they saw was 4 out of 8 patients, and 67% for the KRAS mutant-specific patients. So this is very positive data, and they see, here's the chart on the right here, you can see that the amount of response they saw was pretty dramatic in a lot of patients, and most of these were actually on a prior MEK inhibitor treatment. So that's kind of nice as well, is that if patients are failing on a MEK inhibitor, they can then move on to this combination treatment and then still see a benefit from Veristem's treatment. Now, on the NSCLC side, and this is a huge market, and everybody wants a piece of it. It has a USA prevalence of 230,000 cases per year, which is huge. And of those, 25,000 of them have a KRAS mutation. Unfortunately, though, what they saw is that only 1 out of 10 patients had some kind of response, whether it was a partial response or a complete response. And in this case, it was only a partial response. But 9 out of 10 of those patients did not see a, a real benefit here. Now, in the next slide, I'm going to show the duration of treatment. This is kind of a subjective thing on what the companies are trying to show. But basically with the LGSOC, you can see that patients were treated on the drug for up to 96 weeks, which means that the drug is not only well tolerated, but that they're continuing to see an effect on the cancer, which is a good thing. Some of the patients that are treated only for a short time means that they still have the opportunity to either progress in their disease or they're gonna end up seeing a partial response. So on the NCSLC side, we still see that a number of patients are continuing to take treatment which means that these could turn from stable disease to partial response, or they could revert back and go on a progressive disease. But the fact that only two of these patients went back to progressive disease suggests that there is a bit of potential here in this drug in NCSLC. The other thing, what they often call this is a disease control rate, and they didn't mention that in this press release, but I think it would have been a good idea, because we can see here that only two out of 11 actually progressed in their disease, and 9 out of 11 still have stable disease, so it means that there's still a chance for them to see some kind of response due to this drug. But instead of what the company did, and I'm showing the data here, is they took the data that they had in the current trial, and then they pulled data from two other trials that were pre previously published, and they compiled it all together and they said, look, these two compounds, VS6766 and Defactinib, which is the FAK inhibitor, have a confirmed 57% overall response rate, specifically in KRAS mutant NSCLC. So I, uh, I don't know why they decided to go this route. I don't think anybody is convinced that if you just combine your low efficacy data with previously published data, that you're suddenly just going to be able to combine this together and say, oh look, here's the actual response rate. What the FDA wants to see, as well as investors, is that you can reproduce this trial and that may have been lost in the investigators, but I think it's very bizarre that they went this route and tried to argue there is efficacy if you look at previous data. I think it's one thing to just look at previous data and hold it to its own standard, but if you can't reproduce that old data in a new set of patients, I think you have a serious problem. So I don't like that they went ahead and tried to weave this story by massaging data and including it in a new chart here. 
I would have rather them argue we have a disease control rate of 9 out of 11, and there's still potential for there to be efficacy in these patients. And the reason for that is we have significant amount of competition when it comes to KRAS mutant treatments. One that has a lot of people excited is Amgen's AMG 510, and they're going to be producing some data at ASCO. We saw that they had abstracts released, and in phase one for colorectal cancer, there was an overall response rate and a disease control rate of 12% and 80% respectively. For non-NSCLC tumors, they had an overall response rate and a disease control rate of 13.6% and 73% of the valuable patients. And just to be specific here, because I, I don't think I went through this, overall response rate includes patients that had either a complete response or a partial response. Disease control rate, on the other hand, includes everything in the overall response rate plus those that are stable disease. So, like I said, there's still potential for these patients to go one way or the other. And I think it's a significant metric, especially when you're looking at interim data, because these patients could still go one way or the other. Now, we're also going to see some NSCLC data in Phase 2 that are expected in 2020 from Amgen's AMG 510, and I think all of this stuff is going to be a headwind for Veristem moving forward. Another company that I haven't really looked at in any detail is called Marathi. They have a lot of KRAS assets, and Boehringer Engelheim has a pan-KRAS inhibitor, and there's probably others out there that I didn't have a chance to go through, but suffice to say that Veristem has its work cut out for them to try and be better than this competition as well as lower the side effects. So in terms of future catalysts for Veristem, we see that Copictra has a phase two readout for PTCL expected in early 2021, and they did present some preliminary data at ASH 2019, and I'm showing that here, and so far it looks pretty good. Overall response rate of 54% with a complete response rate of 31%, and they also have fast track designation here. So, you know, there's a good chance that it could be good in PTCL, and then they're also looking as a combination with Keytruda in phase one, two of HNSCC. And this is due in 2021 as well. And we might see some interim data, but there hasn't been a very clear timeline on that yet. With regards to VS6766 and Defactinib, they are going to initiate a registrational study for the LGSOC study in 2020. And they also have to finish and continue their expansion cohorts in other phase one studies. And they're also going to show us more data in their expansion cohorts for NSCLC as well as pancreatic cancer. So unfortunately, though, we don't have a really good clear timeline on when we're going to see data for that. And for that reason, I'm reluctant to take a position. I think that there is a chance here that these two molecules could have an effect in these solid tumors. But without a clear timeline, it makes it difficult for me to, to really pin down. So my verdict here is I don't want to take a position. I think the positive data from Amgen and ASCO is going to be a headwind for Veristem. If they see really good data in colorectal cancer, non-NSCLC data, or the NSCLC data that should be coming in 2020, I think it's going to sour people on Veristem's potential. The other thing is there's no real timeline on the completion of these phase one studies. I think I would be willing to take a position right before the data in hopes that there is a benefit, but without a real timeline, I'm reluctant to do that. I don't think that the massaged reanalysis is very persuasive that there is a strong response in NSCLC. I would have much rather them go with the disease control rate as an argument to say that there is potential here. 
And for that reason, like I said, I would be willing to take a position if I had more of a clear timeline. So I don't blame people for wanting to buy the stock at this low price in the hopes that within the next six months or so, we are going to see a benefit in these different expansion cohorts. But for me, I think it's too risky. There is a Copetra readout in 2021, but that's still pretty far from now. And I think that given the amount of money that they're spending per quarter, the risk really isn't for me there. And I might consider taking a position earlier in 2021, but but right now I think the play is uh, the expectation of data in these phase one expansion cohorts for VS6766 and Defactinib. And like I said, long-term for the company, they face very strong competition. I went through a number of different things that I think are gonna make it very difficult for Veristem to gain a foothold in these different diseases. And so for that reason, I'm reluctant to think that they're gonna have a real staying power in these different indications. So that's Veristem. At the end of next week, we have some updates from ASCO. And for me, I'm gonna be looking for updates in Marker, Trillium, as well as Amgen, specifically related to their AMG 510. I think also let's keep our eyes out for the COVID-19 headlines that should be, you know, continue to move markets, whether it's due to a vaccine or whether it's due to treatment or just uh, surges in different areas. I know specifically in San Diego, the bars and restaurants are now open. So I have a feeling that people are going to be going insane at all parts of the town. And hopefully this doesn't lead to a real significant surge where we see overwhelming of the hospital. But I think that, you know, we need to open the economy and get people back to work, the negative effects of having the economy closed are going to be more substantial than if we just allow people to be safe and practice safe social distancing. So hopefully people can do that though, and that's the, the caveat there. So with that, to do a quick portfolio wrap up, uh, we saw pretty big increases in Madrigal as well as Viking. So you like to see that, and I think that was on the news that Intercept got from the FDA saying that they were going to push out their advisory committee so it'll no longer be on June 9th and there's not a clear set date yet but once uh, once a date is set you know I'm gonna be keeping an eye on that because I want to see how the advisory committee looks at intercepts data and decides to move forward from there another company I wanted to call out is Trevina which has seen a nice improvement I wish I doubled down when the stock was in the 88 cents 77 cents but I'm up quite nicely on that guy and overall, on the year to date, I am negative 5%, which means I'm beating the SPX 500 as well as the Dow Jones. I'm still trailing the IBB XBI as well as the NASDAQ, but I'm catching up. In terms of volatility, we saw a nice increase in the whole stock market and the Moderna news, but it's anybody's guess how things are going to go. I don't have a good sense one way or another if we're going to be going back to all-time highs or we're going to be potentially retesting the lows. So for that reason, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic and I'm still holding uh, what do I have here yeah I still have 29% of my portfolio in cash and I'm gonna look to pick up some good names if a decrease does come up and with that I'm gonna wrap it up so I want to thank everybody again appreciate all the support appreciate all the engagement on Twitter and all the emails have been sent if you want to support the show click the tip jar link below in the description and you can also sign up for a tastyworks account using my referral and with that thanks again everybody and we'll see you next time